Due to the graphic nature of these events, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and sex that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1993, 30-year-old Michael Jordan was the most famous basketball player in the world. He had three NBA championships with the Chicago Bulls under his belt and no shortage of endorsement deals. He was the prize of every company from Nike to Gatorade. On October 6, 1993, at 9 a.m., the Bulls' training facility was overflowing with reporters. Jordan had an announcement for them, and he was soon flanked by top NBA and Bulls brass. It was standing room only for the crowd near the podium. Jordan confirmed the rumors, crushing the dreams of every reporter, aspiring athlete, and basketball fan in the country. He said, I have nothing more to prove in basketball. I have no more challenges that I felt I could get motivated for. His retirement shocked the NBA, basketball fans, and the rest of the world. Jordan was only 30 and in his prime. He had another five years left in him, if not more, especially since he didn't have any chronic injuries. He was the star of a winning team. Leaving didn't make sense. While questions about this puzzling development persisted, fans and the press started to wonder if Jordan's retirement was tied to a conspiracy, one that threatened to completely derail the Bulls' championship dynasty. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Richard. This is our eighth episode on the dark side of the 90s. As every decade brings new challenges, a rosy tint has started to color these bygone years. But all this nostalgia obscures more unpleasant pages of 90s history. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Today, we're diving into the Chicago Bulls' dominance of 90s NBA basketball. Equipped with the talent of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman, the team won six championships over the course of the decade. The Bulls went from a failing team to one of, if not the, top teams in basketball. But their dynasty was plagued with vicious conspiracies, savage betrayal, and fractured teammate relationships. We'll dig into how the Bulls rose to basketball dominance right after this. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Boo berries. 
That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 1984, the struggling Chicago Bulls were in need of a superstar. After the team failed to qualify for the playoffs, they looked to their next season. If they could secure someone big in the NBA draft, they might just turn things around. On June 19th, the Bulls drafted a talented 21-year-old shooting guard named Michael Jordan. But Jordan wasn't at New York City's Madison Square Garden to pose for the traditional draft night photos. He was training for the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles with the USA basketball team. Back then, the International Basketball Federation did not allow professional NBA players to compete in the games, so Team USA was mostly composed of college basketball stars like Jordan. Though he'd already won an NCAA championship with the University of North Carolina Tar Heels, Jordan wasn't content to hang back in the college league. He left school a year early to go pro, and he'd start building his fame long before he joined the Bulls. Throughout the 1984 Olympics, Jordan led the talented team in scoring and dazzled TV viewers at home. His slam dunks defied gravity. To watch him play was a show unlike any other, and fans loved every minute of it. On August 10, 1984, Team USA won the gold medal against Spain thanks to Jordan, the top scorer. The victory afterglow was still fresh when a small athletic company named Nike offered Jordan his own shoe line, Air Jordan. This was a huge deal for a rookie who hadn't even stepped foot on an NBA court yet. The popular legend holds that the NBA fined Jordan $5,000 for every game he sported Air Jordans. The shoe's bold colors broke the league's white sneaker rule. This isn't entirely true. According to the Chicago Tribune, the shoes Jordan wore during the 1985 season were just regular Nike sneakers, as the real Air Jordans were still in the process of being manufactured. But Nike capitalized on the controversy anyway. Ads for the sneakers told those at home that the real reason the NBA banned the shoe was because it was so revolutionary. Aside from the Air Jordans debacle, Jordan grew frustrated for other reasons. The Detroit Pistons kept beating the Bulls in the playoffs, squashing his chances of championship glory. But soon, two key people arrived in Chicago that made all the difference. Small forward Scottie Pippen and head coach Phil Jackson. Pippen was Jordan's favorite teammate, and Jackson had a plan to overcome Detroit, the triangle offense. With it, Jordan, Pippen, and the Bulls became absolutely unstoppable in the 90s. The Bulls finally beat Detroit in the 1991 playoffs and advanced to the NBA Finals for the first time in franchise history. But the Bulls' next opponent was none other than the winningest team of the 1980s, the Los Angeles Lakers. 28-year-old Jordan was pitted against one of his idols, 31-year-old Lakers superstar Irvin Magic Johnson. Jordan versus Johnson was basketball's David versus Goliath. Defying all expectations, the Bulls beat the Lakers, winning its first NBA championship on June 12, 1991. Once the champagne and confetti were gone, 
Jordan and the Bulls were ready to defend their title against Johnson, the Lakers, and the rest of the league. The Bulls wanted to make the statement that they were not a fluke. But right before the 1991-1992 season and the rematches that would come with it, Johnson was missing from an October preseason exhibition game hosted by the Utah Jazz. Johnson was on his way back to Los Angeles at the request of Lakers management. The results from his routine physical exam were in, and he'd failed. It didn't make sense to the team. Johnson was healthy and in his prime. But on October 25, 1991, the Lakers doctor told Johnson the news. He was HIV positive. This would soon progress into AIDS. Back in the early 1990s, people who contracted HIV had little hope for survival. Long-term drug treatments for the virus didn't exist yet. In 1991, 10 million people worldwide contracted HIV, and 1 million were Americans. The myth that HIV was a gay man's sexually transmitted disease didn't help either. In fact, even in the 90s, the public still widely misunderstood HIV, so the stigma continued, even as heterosexual men, women, and babies contracted it through blood transfusions and breastfeeding. Because there was still so much unknown about the disease, the doctors advised Johnson to stop playing basketball to protect his own immune system and his teammates. The Lakers star agreed. On November 7, 1991, the 32-year-old Johnson announced his retirement and revealed his HIV status at a Los Angeles press conference. He assured reporters that his pregnant wife, Cookie, and their unborn child did not have the virus. In retiring, Johnson was trading one position of leadership for another. He pledged to become an advocate for HIV and shatter the stigma surrounding it. Naturally, news of the most high-profile heterosexual celebrity with HIV sent shockwaves around the sports world and beyond. Johnson's Lakers teammates and fans worried his time was limited. But in just a few weeks, public concern turned into wild speculation. Without a statement from Johnson on how he contracted the virus, rumors swirled that he was secretly gay or bisexual. But to be an advocate, in Johnson's mind, meant telling the truth, no matter how uncomfortable. A few months later, 32-year-old Johnson admitted on ABC's Primetime Live that he had harems of women during the height of the Lakers' 1980s success. He engaged in sex with them in the locker room right after games. His admissions tarnished his once wholesome image, but Johnson wanted to own up to his mistakes. In his autobiography, My Life, Johnson acknowledged his sexual debauchery was how he got infected, but he still didn't know who it came from. It didn't matter, though. The former Lakers player moved past being the NBA's wholesome hero and embraced his new image, a man working hard to reform himself and the HIV stigma. Meanwhile, basketball needed a new hero, and Michael Jordan stepped up to that role. He was expected to be the perfect basketball player, the smiling product spokesperson, and a heroic figure to everyone at all times. What could possibly go wrong? Next, 
Jordan struggles under the high pressure of the spotlight. Now, back to the story. After a spectacular debut with the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan was not just an exalted rookie, but a basketball icon. Especially after his own idol, Magic Johnson, stepped out of the spotlight to advocate for HIV awareness. With Jordan as the NBA's new role model, all eyes in America were on him. And that meant he became the face of American capitalism, whether he liked it or not. Every kid woke up to a Wheaties box with Jordan's mug printed on it. At the mall, they eyed the latest pair of Air Jordans at Foot Locker. They'd wear those new sneakers to play basketball and drink Gatorade while humming the brand's infectious jingle, If I Could Be Like Mike. But not everyone wanted to be exactly like Mike. He was famous, but he wasn't perfect. He had his vices. Jordan liked to engage in vicious trash talk to motivate his teammates and himself. While the brands broadcast his nice guy smile to the world, Jordan dished out harsh insults to push the Bulls to play better. It often worked. Playful burns soon turned into a feud with one teammate in particular, 27-year-old power forward Horace Grant. Jordan suspected that Grant was the anonymous source who contributed to a 1992 tell-all book about him called The Jordan Rules by journalist Sam Smith. The book painted Jordan as a volatile player who allegedly punched teammate Will Perdue and sabotaged Bill Cartwright's in-game passing. It was the first scandal in Jordan's career. Suddenly, he had a target on his back. Everyone wanted to profit on his fame and take him down. But this time, Jordan shrugged it off and his Bulls teammates stood by him. They called the book pure fiction. Grant also denied providing any information to Smith. Jordan held ill will for Grant for many years, but he was skilled in using grudges to feed his massive drive to win. Jordan's competitive streak permeated his hobbies. Off the court, he was always itching to bet money on something, whether it was on a card game or a cartoon race broadcast on the arena's Jumbotron. Jordan loved high-stakes gambling. He'd always invite his teammates to play cards with him, but his wagers were too heavy. Unlike his colleagues, Jordan got not just a paycheck, but millions from endorsement deals. Not being in the same income bracket as his teammates made him feel a little isolated. Jordan struggled with reconciling his own identity with the idealized nice guy spokesperson the world knew. And the chasm between his two selves only grew deeper after the Chicago Bulls won their second NBA championship on June 14, 1992. All Jordan wanted to do was be a basketball champion. But each trophy placed more expectations and pressure on him. In addition to endorsing brands, Jordan was soon expected to do the same for people. Rumors swirled that back in 1990, he refused to endorse Harvey Gantt, a Black Democratic candidate trying to unseat the reviled Republican Senator Jesse Helms of North Carolina. Gantt's campaign knew what Jordan's seal of approval would mean as a renowned Black athlete from the state. It would definitely bolster support for the former Charlotte mayor. Jordan, however, didn't want to give in to this pressure. 
He wanted nothing to do with politics and realized speaking out could impact his Nike deal. At one point on the Bulls team bus, he relayed his reasoning, hey, Republicans buy shoes too. The press caught wind of the remark and Jordan received widespread criticism for prioritizing Nike sales over supporting a black politician, especially because Gant eventually lost the election to Helms. Jordan denied making the remark for years, until recently admitting he did say it in jest. He later explained, I wasn't a politician when I was playing my sport. I was focused on my craft. He was caught in the frustrating, microscopic nature of celebrity, where his every move was analyzed and scrutinized, including his off-the-cuff jokes. The attention was becoming too much, and Jordan wished he could fade into the background. But even more prying eyes were on Jordan in 1992 as he trained for the Summer Olympics in Barcelona, Spain. Due to a rule change, NBA players were now allowed to play for the U.S. national basketball team. Of course, the league's greatest players were invited to compete, including Jordan. He enjoyed preparing for the games alongside Scottie Pippen, Charles Barkley, Larry Bird, and an unretired Magic Johnson. They were nicknamed the Dream Team. After practices, Jordan ran nightly poker games with Pippin, Barkley, and Johnson that often went past midnight. Jordan was always looking to buy the pot, meaning he made bets so rich it forced other players to fold. But part of him was thinking about life beyond the Olympics and basketball. Jordan had been talking to veteran sports journalist Mark Vansell about writing a book on his career. After an Olympic practice that summer, Jordan met Vansell in a stairwell and confided in him. He wanted to quit the NBA and play baseball. The book needed to happen sooner than later to drum up interest in a Jordan MLB run. Jordan wanted to continue playing sports, but he also wanted to be on a team where he wasn't Michael Jordan the hero. He just wanted to be one of the guys again. He felt physically worn out by basketball and mentally exhausted by the public scrutiny. He later said, I'm at that stage in my career and my life that I'd rather get behind closed doors than to be out there in the spotlight to be taking shots from everyone that don't know you as a person. It wasn't a question of if, but when he'd retire. First, Jordan wanted to win his second gold medal at the 1992 Olympics, then a third NBA championship with the Bulls. He accomplished the first goal on August 8, 1992, when the Dream Team defeated Croatia in the championship game. But on the way to his next NBA championship, Jordan faced the biggest threat to his role model reputation yet. In February of 1993, Jordan's gambling habits were exposed to the public. A $57,000 check he wrote to drug dealer and hustler James Slim Buhler surfaced, and he was eventually questioned in court. Buhler was on trial for money laundering and conspiracy charges, and Jordan's check was certainly suspicious. Initially, the basketball star claimed the check was a business loan, but under oath, he changed his position. He admitted the money was meant to pay off a gambling debt. Soon, the buzz about his off-the-court vice only got louder. On May 1, 1993, 
sports executive and Jordan's golf buddy Richard Esquinas published an incriminating book called Michael and Me, Our Gambling Addiction, My Cry for Help. In it, Esquinas claimed Jordan owed him a staggering $1.25 million from golf bets. Jordan denied this. He feared ruining his meticulously crafted image and losing his millions in endorsement deals. Nike wouldn't want a gambler to be the face of their shoes. Amid the chatter about his gambling, Jordan turned the blinders on and focused on the NBA postseason. The Chicago Bulls were poised to win their third championship in a row. Fans and the media dubbed it a three-peat. But late in May of 1993, the Chicago Bulls faced an unfathomable situation. They fell behind in the Eastern Conference Finals. The defending champs lost the first two games in a best-of-seven series against the hard-charging New York Knicks at Madison Square Garden. On May 27, 1993, New York Times columnist Dave Anderson blamed the Bulls' losses on Jordan's gambling. The article detailed that instead of prepping for Game 2, the Bulls' star went to Atlantic City, New Jersey with his father, James. Jordan reportedly lost $5,000 playing blackjack at Bally's Grand Casino until 2.30 a.m., then headed back to Manhattan. The report set off a media firestorm. While rumors of Jordan's gambling had been circulating for a while, this was the first time his extracurricular habit directly threatened the Bulls' championship dynasty. Jordan admitted to taking the trip, but clarified he was back in bed at 11 and denied that it impacted his play during Game 2. Despite the fact that the Bulls rebounded to beat the Knicks and eventually achieve a championship three-peat during the June 1993 NBA Finals, Jordan's gambling was all anyone talked about. The 30-year-old's perfect role model persona was shattered. The speculation snowballed from there. If Jordan bet on golf games and blackjack, did he also gamble on NBA games? After the season concluded in June 1993, the league appointed former federal judge Frederick Lacey to investigate Jordan's off-court activities, but ultimately cleared him of any wrongdoing. The 1993 offseason was one allocated to damage control. In July 1993, Jordan famously told journalist Connie Chung in an interview, I can stop gambling. I have a competition problem. Jordan denied he had an addiction, though the media and fans speculated otherwise. He resented the scrutiny more than ever as it encroached on his endorsement deals. He hadn't lost any of his brand spokesperson opportunities, but he was on shaky ground. The media frenzy caused Jordan to further contemplate his retirement with his father, James. The elder Jordan always supported his son's basketball career, but had long held in his heart that Michael would be a baseball star. James encouraged his son to retire from basketball to try baseball, if that's what he really wanted to do. It was the last conversation Jordan had with his father. On July 23, 1993, 56-year-old James Jordan pulled over on a North Carolina highway to take a nap. While he slept, two teenagers shot and killed him, dumped his body in a nearby swamp, and stole the car in a random act of violence. 
James's body was found several weeks later, on August 13, 1993. Jordan was devastated. His number one fan, his own father, was brutally murdered. But Michael's sadness soon turned to frustration when the sports media speculated that James was killed over Jordan's gambling debts. Amidst his grief, Jordan was insulted that people were blaming him for his father's death. He emphatically denied any connection between the two subjects. Despite his comments, the media relentlessly probed this theory in August of 1993. Newspapers and tabloids ran headlines like, Is Michael somehow tied to Dad's bizarre death? Mentions of Jordan's gambling were inserted into every story on his father's passing, including when two suspects were arrested and charged with the murder. The last straw, though, was when federal investigators admitted they were looking into the theory. The conspiracy had taken on a life of its own. Jordan was deeply hurt, and his trust in the media fell to an all-time low. By October 6, 1993, 30-year-old Jordan had enough of the scrutiny and the spotlight. At 9 a.m., he arrived at the Chicago Bulls training facilities for a press conference with coach Phil Jackson and NBA commissioner David Stern. Next, Jordan reveals he's done with basketball. Now, back to the story. In the early 1990s, the Chicago Bulls established themselves as the best team in the NBA three years in a row, and Michael Jordan emerged as a superstar. But the pressure and scrutiny of being the most valuable player, perfect role model, and nice guy brand spokesperson soon became too much. On October 6, 1993, Jordan announced his retirement effective immediately at a press conference. It would take years for Jordan to finally feel comfortable enough with journalists to admit that the media blitz surrounding his father's death pushed him out of basketball. On that fall day, all he said was that he was done, for now. Jordan didn't rule out an NBA comeback, though. He said, if the urge comes back, if the Bulls will have me, if David Stern lets me back in the league, I may come back. The public was shocked at first, but soon the rumors and theories focused on that Jordan quote. Stern was the longtime NBA commissioner, and he had the final say on the barring and reinstatement of league players. Speculation abounded that Jordan's retirement was actually a secret gambling suspension. The prying sports media hypothesized the NBA's investigation into Jordan's gambling did reveal wrongdoing. To keep the reputation of its superstar intact, the NBA allegedly kept it under wraps and forced Jordan to retire as a punishment. When asked about this theory, both Jordan and Stern denied that there was any truth to it. But it was proof that gambling rumors would continue to haunt Jordan if he stayed in basketball. Fully committed to baseball, Jordan announced he signed with the Chicago White Sox on February 7, 1994. Par for the course, he'd go through the team's minor league system and start playing for the AA Birmingham Barons. 
He relished in just being one of the guys again and learning the intricacies of the sport. But just as Jordan started improving on the field, a storm was brewing in baseball. On August 12, 1994, MLB players, including Jordan, went on strike. During the work stoppage, Jordan's progress stopped dead in its tracks. The strike continued into the next year, and the MLB searched for replacement players. Jordan refused to cross the picket line and wanted to escape any coercion or media scrutiny. So on March 2, 1995, Jordan packed up his belongings and left baseball for good. Meanwhile, during Jordan's absence, the Bulls looked to 29-year-old Scottie Pippen to lead. The small forward was an integral part of the team's three championships. But when Jordan had been on the court, his shadow was hard to escape. It was finally Pippen's time to be the star and build his own legacy. Or so he thought. Instead, Bulls general manager Jerry Krause touted 26-year-old Tony Kukoc, a rookie from Croatia, as the team's new star. Pippen quietly grew resentful, and he reached his breaking point during the 1994 playoffs. On May 13, 1994, the Bulls and Knicks were tied at 102 points. Only 1.8 seconds remained on the clock at Chicago Stadium. The Knicks claimed the first two victories of the Eastern Conference Finals. The Bulls needed this win to quell the talk about how the team was only successful because of Jordan. During a timeout, coach Phil Jackson devised a play that set up Kukoc to take the final shot. Kukoc had sunk several buzzer-beating baskets during the regular season, but Pippen took offense. He saw himself as the most dangerous player on the Bulls and thought he should get the shot. Pippen reportedly told Jackson, I'm tired of this. He sat on the bench. As his teammates returned to the court for the final second, they called out for him to join. Pippen shook his head and refused. Kukoc made the game-winning shot, but the media didn't care. They wanted to know why Pippen was benched in the final second. It was proof Pippen was indeed the star. This small moment plagued him for the rest of the season. His reputation with his teammates, fans, and the media was tarnished. Pippen eventually apologized to his teammates. Despite the win, the Bulls lost to the Knicks in the rest of the series. Their bid for a fourth NBA championship and their first without Jordan fell short. It was more evident than ever. The Bulls needed Jordan in order to win. Luckily, the superstar was ready to make a comeback. In March of 1995, Jordan started attending practices with the Chicago Bulls. His teammates and the media wondered, is Jordan coming back to basketball? An answer finally arrived on March 18, 1995. Jordan issued a short statement to the sports media via fax. I'm back. The message was simple, but monumental. Jordan wanted to be back on the roster, and the NBA was glad to oblige. He returned to his former team, and the Bulls honored his old $3.8 million a year contract. On the court, Jordan slid back into the lineup and helped the team rebound from a tough season. But reuniting Jordan with 29-year-old Scottie Pippen on the court 
didn't recreate the championship-winning magic they once had. The Bulls advanced to the NBA playoffs in late April 1995, but were defeated by the Orlando Magic on May 18, 1995. After the loss, the Bulls' lineup was retooled during the offseason. Power forward Horace Grant's contract wasn't renewed, and the team searched for a new frontcourt player. On October 3, 1995, the team acquired the bombastic, controversial Dennis Rodman. The 34-year-old was the NBA's best rebounder. But adding Rodman to the Bulls was a huge risk because he was better known for his wild antics off the court. Rodman bleached his hair blonde, partied all the time, and received fines for headbutting several players. He famously dated pop singer Madonna for two months in 1994 and claimed she paid him $20 million to impregnate her. During the 1994 season, the San Antonio Spurs paid Rodman $2.5 million to play, but he spent the majority of the time making trouble, from throwing a bag of ice at his coach to arguing with refs and getting ejected from games. By the end of the season, Rodman and the Spurs management had had enough of each other, prompting the 1995 trade. To the Bulls, Rodman's liabilities were worth gaining his talent. Coach Phil Jackson found a way to manage Rodman's behavior for the most part. Rodman and Coach Phil Jackson even bonded, which further helped the Bulls return to dominance and win their fourth NBA championship in June of that year. Oddly, as Rodman became less of a liability, 33-year-old Jordan grew as one, especially when a Nike expose was published in the spring of 1996. The article described children as young as 12 years old making Nike products for $2.20 a day in sweatshops. A pair of Air Jordans at the time cost $115, which was the amount a Nike factory worker earned in one month in Indonesia. The report made sweatshops and child labor practices an international concern. Nike faced protests and constant scrutiny regarding its factories in Indonesia and Vietnam. And there'd be no shoes without the man behind their top-selling sneaker, Michael Jordan. The scrutiny came for him in waves. The sports media called on Jordan to join the masses in protesting Nike. Talk show host Kathy Lee Gifford's clothing brand also faced a similar backlash for using sweatshops. She wanted Jordan to join her in standing up for unethical labor practices. But again, he wasn't interested in speaking out or risking his million-dollar endorsement deal. Nike had invested in him when he was an unproven rookie. In light of that, Jordan stayed loyal to the brand. When asked about Nike's abuses in June of 1996, he said, hopefully Nike will do the right thing, whatever that might be. As Nike considered reforms to its business practices, Jordan signed a one-year contract with the Chicago Bulls for $30.1 million after he and the Bulls won their fifth NBA championship in 1997, Jordan re-signed for $33.1 million. Scottie Pippen saw these high numbers and became even more resentful of the Bulls' general manager, Jerry Krause. He was a top defensive player and a crucial part of the team's five NBA championships, yet Pippen was only paid $2.8 million a year. 
he was locked into a seven-year, $18 million contract that he signed in 1991. And while NBA salaries of other star players climbed upwards, Pippins stayed the same. In the 1997-1998 season, he was only the sixth-highest-paid player on the Bulls. Rookies earned more than him. He was embarrassed that he was spending his best years in the sport as underpaid and underappreciated. But Krauss refused to negotiate Pippin's contract. And in the summer of 1997, the Bulls made it clear they intended to trade Pippin. The top brass didn't think that the Bulls could win another championship because the roster was filled with older players in their 30s. Out with the old, in with the young, new talent. So the night before the NBA draft, it looked like Pippin would be traded to the Toronto Raptors. But once Jordan found out about it, he called Krauss and refused to play without Pippin. He all but deadlocked the Bulls' future season. If Jordan refused to play without Pippin, the Bulls had little chance at fielding a winning team. There wouldn't be a sixth championship, let alone the dynasty that Krauss dreamed of. Krauss realized this and nixed the trade. Pippin remained with the Bulls, but the almost betrayal simmered within him. Loyalty from one teammate didn't change the fact that the Bulls had nearly kicked him off the team for an unproven rookie and that he was still underpaid for staying. Right before the 1997-1998 season started, Pippen decided to get his passive-aggressive revenge. After rupturing a tendon in his foot during the 1997 season, Pippen had been considering a repair surgery, but hadn't found the best time, granted the lengthy recovery and rehabilitation process. But in light of the contract saga, Pippen decided October 1997 was the best time for it to happen, barely a month before the season began. He'd end up missing half the season to recover, but that was his way of making a point. He definitely hadn't forgotten or forgiven. And while Jordan understood the root of Pippin's decision, he still disagreed. He personally wouldn't have put his own self-interest before winning, or at least that's what he claimed. But Pippin had spent almost a decade in Jordan's shadow. He wanted to do things on his own terms now. Pippin returned in January of 1998, fully aware that this was his final season with the Chicago Bulls. And he wasn't alone. In light of the knowledge that coach Phil Jackson wouldn't likely return either, Jordan was readying for his own last season too. The 35-year-old star player refused to play for another coach. As for 38-year-old Rodman, his future with the Bulls and the NBA was up in the air. The wild card was considered an old player, close to NBA retirement age. Plus, Rodman had started acting out again. He reined in his wild ways while he was filling in for Pippin, but once his teammate returned, Rodman returned to, well, normal. He requested a 48-hour Las Vegas vacation in January of 1998 and skipped a postseason practice to wrestle Hulk Hogan in a professional match. The well-oiled Chicago Bulls machine was collapsing on itself. Jordan, Pippen, Jackson, and Rodman knew that this was their final chance to solidify their own legacies as they prepared for the future. With one more win, 
the Bulls could become the first NBA team to achieve two three-peats. They'd not only be known for being part of a winning team, but a full-fledged dynasty. This was it. On June 14, 1998, the team won their sixth NBA championship. They got their second three-peat and their legacy. But once the win was secured and the season was over, the Chicago Bulls that fans knew and loved were ripped apart. Pippen stuck around in the NBA, but without their identities with the Bulls, Jordan and Rodman's time in the sport faded fast. Rodman briefly played for the Dallas Mavericks, but soon traded basketball for wrestling. And Jordan retired from the NBA for the second time. Kraus tried to rebuild a new and improved Chicago Bulls team in the 2000s, but he never recreated that magic championship formula that vaulted the team to greatness in the 90s. In truth, many winning teams are created through hard work, but there's also an undeniable mixture of luck and sheer talent that builds extraordinary teams. The Bulls found that medium in Michael Jordan, but even superstars have their limits. And it seemed like Michael hit his own breaking point long before his comeback. One can't help but wonder what the 1990s Bulls would have looked like without Jordan's departure for the MLB, his gambling scandals, or the scrutiny over his endorsement deals. But unfortunately, we'll never know. The Bulls' heyday is done for good, and all we have left is the memory of their former glory. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we're delving into teen culture in the 90s. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>